I guess Bob Watson doesn't really need any introduction to people interested in these issues. He's currently Chief Scientific Advisor to DEFRA, who's worked for the World Bank, for the White House, for NASA, and for many other uh, bodies of one sort or another. And his CV is, is just completely intimidating. His <coughs> most recent award is a knighthood. At least I think it's his most recent award, because there could have been something since. Um, but uh, we're very interested to hear what you have to say. OK, so this is an atmospheric chemist giving a talk on biodiversity and economics, having never taken a course in my life on either economics or biodiversity. Uh, but I was fortunate. Um, recently, I co-chaired the UK National Ecosystem Assessment. So I want to talk about it, and in particular, how we looked at some of the value issues, and particularly the economic issues. Um, basically, we looked at UK ecosystems. We looked back for 60 years. We looked forward for, uh, 50 years using a series of plausible scenarios we tried to look at an assessment of the economic and social values of biodiversity and ecosystem services, and we looked at the various response functions that we could have. It basically involved about 500 scientists across the UK. We used a very simple conceptual framework. It was an evolution of the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment that I co-chaired. We looked at the drivers of change, both the indirect drivers, uh, economic drivers, demographic drivers, socio-political drivers, cultural drivers, technological drivers. Then we looked how they manifested themselves in the way we manage and interact with our ecosystem. So what were the management practices, uh, what were the environmental changes, such as climate change. So how did the drives of change affect ecosystems, the habitat? How did change in the habitat affect the services? <coughs> How did changing the services affect what we care about, the so-called goods that we depend upon as humans? So we took a very anthropocentric view of this. Then how did it affect human well-being from an economic health and a shared social value perspective? And then what were the interventions? What were the policies, technologies that we could have uh, to interact with this particular system? <clears throat> the ecosystem services, we broke them into four, the same framework we use in the Millennium Ecosystem. So the provisioning services, crops, livestock, game, fisheries, etc. And they have market value. And we've obviously, obviously over the last uh, you know, many decades, we've put value on the provisioning services. Then there's the regulating services, the cultural and the supporting services, that not rarely have value in the marketplace. Uh, some do now, but, that, but not very many. So we've got regulating climate, detoxification, air quality, disease, uh, um, wind, uh, sort of a storm surge in the ocean, cultural services, aesthetic, spiritual, inspirational, and underline all of these, what we call the so-called supporting services. The framework's important. I'll come back to it when we looked at the way we looked at value, and in particular economic value, in a short period of time. So we broke the UK, we had to break it somewhere, so we put eight broad habitats, ranging from mountains to the marine system. So we looked at each of these various habitats and we asked ourselves, what services did these um, habitats provide to humans? And as you can see, literally every habitat has a very wide range of services. It doesn't matter if it's mountain malls and heaths or fresh water or coastal margins, they all have a large range of provisioning, regulating and cultural services. Did not bother putting up the supporting services, but they would e also equally be covered right across all the habitats. So the real question is, if I have a, a policy change, or I have an intervention, a land use change, then the question in any one of these ecosystems is, what do I gain by changing the policy, or what do I gain 
by having an intervention and what do I lose? So the ecosystem approach simply says, understand what ecosystem services you get in any one of these ecosystems. And if you do something to change that ecosystem, land use change, for example, you have to understand what you gain and what you lose. Very straightforward. So what are some of the key messages? First one's the most important one, basically. And that is, there's no question that the benefits we derive from the natural world are critically important to human well-being. But we consistently undervalue, in economic terms, these services. The only ones until recently we've truly put value on are the ones with market value. We have not put value on all of those non-market or ones with social. So clearly, obviously, ecosystems that are constantly changing, the indirect drivers, then effectively they are affected by the direct drivers. And the direct drivers typically are at conversion of natural habitats, especially in, say, a developing country, conversion recently of tropical forests to agricultural systems, the conversion of mangrove systems to shrimp farms, etc. But we've also had major habitat change in the UK. 97% of all our natural, uh, semi-natural grasslands have been changed since the Second World War. Major changes in our heathlands and moors. Uh, air pollution, a major, uh, as well, uh, not only air pollution, but land and water pollution, major threat to ecosystems in the last 50 years. Um, effectively invasive species, uh, climate change and exploitation. The biggest example of over-exploitation is clearly the way we're uh, fishing down all of the stocks of our fish. Totally and utterly unsustainable. Globally, it's a real problem that 30% now of all of the oceans are grossly overfished. Probably around 50% of that, about an equilibrium maximum sustainable fish catch and only a few percent, 20% or less, is there any potential of any further exploitation without becoming truly unsustainable. So five basic uh, uh, reasons that we're actually converting our ecosystem. And this just says it graphically. The indirect drivers that I've said, these don't directly affect ecosystems, but they convert themselves into the demand for biological resources, the demand for fresh water, the demand for energy, then leads to the five direct drivers, as I've already said, habitat change, climate, invasive species, over-exploitation, nutrients, and they all affect biodiversity, and then that in turn affects um, ecosystems and their services. It was very logical after the Second World War that we put nearly all of our effort in increasing uh, the provisioning of food, fibre, timber, energy and water. The trouble was, as we did that, we underestimated the impact of the decline in most of the other ecosystem services. We significantly degraded the regulating services, uh, the cultural services, and indirectly the supporting services. So very logical to put an effort on the provisioning services, but it came at a very, very large expense. That's also been true right across the world, and it's continuing now. In the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment that I co-chaired, we looked at 24 ecosystem services and we found 15 of the 24 were in significant decline. We found about four, maybe five, were just about balanced, depending where you were in the world, and only about four or five were increasing. Now, if you told the Chancellor of Exchequer that you've got 24 measures of the wealth of your nation, and you told them 15 of those indicators were going south, uh, something would happen. We've told the world that biodiversity and ecosystems are in significant decline and nothing is still being done. And the reason is we still haven't got the economics right, basically. That will be the main point of the talk. We're making some significant progress in the UK, 
based national policy, but a lot of it being driven by EU policy. So we may or may not like some of the EU policy, but fundamentally EU policy becoming national policy coupled with technological developments has led to a significant improvement in the condition of many of our ecosystems. The next slide is actually a summary of about a thousand pages. What it simply says is, these are the eight habitats along the top. These are the various services, the provisioning, cultural and regulating services we looked at. We asked ourselves a very simple question, which habitats provide which services? So if it's a very dark green, it means that habitat was very important in providing that service. The most obvious one, enclosed farmlands, third along at the right, are very important for crops and for livestock, self-evident of course. So we went through all of the various habitats and all of the various services to understand whether it is a very important, medium importance, relatively small or relatively non-existent. So we looked to see what the habitat, which habitats provided which service. We then asked ourselves, were those services getting better or worse? So we analysed what had happened, the direction of change in the last 10 or 20 years. And effectively, if, a, if an arrow is going up, like enclosed farmlands and crops, we are producing more crops. If the arrow is going down, it means that, that that habitat is providing less and less of a service. So if the arrow is going up, it says that habitat is increasing the services. If the arrow is horizontal, it means it's about constant in the last 10 or 20 years. And if the arrow is going down, it says things are getting worse. So if you look at nearly all of the aquatic systems, so marine, coastal, margins and fresh water, you will see for each of the aquatic, the arrows are going down. We clearly have not got to grips with degradation of our aquatic ecosystems, whether it's our rivers, our lakes, or our coastal zone, and the marine. If you look at something like woodlands, you see many of the arrows going up. We finally got to grips with the woodlands, and we're actually now starting to replant the woodlands, not just with conifers, but with broadleaf trees as well. However, in England, we've got the lowest percentage of forest of any country in Europe. So even though things are getting better in the woodlands and they provide many, many services, as you can see, uh, things, while they're getting better, we're nowhere near the sort of forest cover any other country in Europe has got at the moment. So this, this was a, an analysis of the last 50 years, very carefully looking at the habitats and the various services uh, that were provided by each of those habitats. Well, yep. What happened to the fourth type of service? The supporting services? We've looked at soils, uh, so we've looked at some of the underlying services. We just don't bother putting on it because we don't value them, and I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, and the reason for not valuing them is we get double counting. That they provide, they're the basis of the provisioning services, the cultural <coughs> services, and the regulating services. So in the end, we, now we did look at things, and we did look at things like soil quality, and it's actually a mixed bag, but it's typically going down, as you can see. But we, di we didn't look, we, we've got a chapter on uh, the supporting services, is that we just didn't bother showing it on this particular uh, graph. Can I just, the, yeah. the cultural services, they're all actually doing all right. They're either constant or going. In the last 10 or 20 years. Because we, we value. We've started to put some value on them at some stage, exactly. Started to. Uh, up till now, up till then, we probably hadn't. But some of it is actually we've put more woodlands in place, which have some social value. And what you'll see is we've actually tried to put some economic value on it a little bit later. So the bottom line fundamentally is, and I've already said it, uh, an increase in provisioning services such as food and timber, decreases in many other ecosystem services. Last 10 or 20 years, 
Unfortunately, some services are still declining, especially the aquatic systems. Other have reduced rate of decline, and some, especially woodlands, have improved. But if you look at it today, still, with all the laws we've got in place and we've started to value our ecosystems, 35% of the services are still declining, only about 20% improving. The rest are about constant, but they're constant at a much lower level than they were at the end of the Second World War. So even though ser services that are not getting, uh, getting worse are still not in great shape, many of them. But, so, you know, just quickly, this shows fundamentally uh, the wheat going up, largely because of pillar one of common agricultural policy. Lots of subsidies. Sounds good at one level, but they never thought of any of the externalities. And farmland birds are going down. So we increase production. Uh, which was badly needed <coughs> to feed the, feed the UK cost effectively, although we have to realise of the food we eat, only 65% of it is actually grown in the UK, 35% is imported, so we're a major trading nation, and of the 35% we uh, import, most of it comes from Europe, 25% from Europe, about 10% from the rest of the world. So we've seen increases in crop productivity, but this is an indicator, it's only one, an indicator of uh, biodiversity and farmland birds clearly continuing to go down. Uh, we've also seen fish landings, uh, peaked about 1970, gone down fairly significantly since 1970. And what we realised was uh, the, the proportion of the fin fish that were harvested sustainably by about the late 1980s, early 1990s, none of it was sustainable. We were grossly, grossly overfishing all of the waters around the UK. Since then, we've become much more sustainable. New laws have been put in place and we're becoming more sustainable, but the overall fish catch is still significantly less than the peak in 1970. Bob, when you judge sustainability in fisheries, what about the other countries that don't have the same... I mean, how do you estimate that or do you just sort of take that as constant? No, no, no. Most of the fisheries around the world are not sustainable, basically. Yeah. And the problem is, some of it is we don't understand everything about sustainable fisheries. Most of it is just poor management practice. We know what we should do. Bluefin tuna is a perfect example. In, I find it totally embarrassing that we're telling the rest of the world not to fish unsustainably. We find that bluefin tuna in the Mediterranean is going down like this, well on its way to potential extinction. And the French and Spanish our fishermen had so much political power they blocked all moves in the EU to stop fishing them for purely commercial factors. Which is a the fish catch, this is coastal fisheries or yes, yes. So that might so Yeah, most of that is most of that it's fish stocks around the UK. So I presume it's it's probably beyond the twelve mile limit, but within the two hundred mile limit. Oh, so then what we did is we asked ourselves, okay, if you're gonna sort of have a policy or a change in technology to become more sustainable, you've got to know what the relative drivers are. So we looked at our five direct drivers from habitat change to invasive species. We looked at our, basically our broad habitats and we asked ourselves the question, what were the major drivers of change first since the 1940s and then recently in the last 20 years? So habitat change, so dark brown means it's a major driver of change all the way to something that's almost colourless was a low driver of change. So as you can see, habitat change and pollution were major drivers of change in the last 60 years. 
Um, whereas climate change is almost colourless except for the coastal margins. And fundamentally, climate change has not been a major driver for change on most UK habitats. Uh, then the arrow is effectively the last 20 years. And so you can see effectively, if the arrow is going up, it is becoming a bigger and bigger driver of change in a relative sense. And you found exactly the same picture globally, that globally what we recognise is climate change, except for the polar regions, was not a major driver of change. But over the next 50 years, climate change may be the biggest single driver for changes in biodiversity and degradation of ecosystems. Hence, while we've got a climate convention and a biodiversity convention, we've got to get these things working together, basically, because you can't look at climate change without biodiversity, and you can't look at biodiversity without climate change. So we did a good we've done a good analysis of effectively what the drivers of change are, what the recent trends are, and that tells you that if you don't deal with climate change, and that is, of course, is a global issue, it can't be dealt with at the UK level, then clearly we've got a major problem on the UK biodiversity and ecosystem, and you've equally got one, the same answer globally. Invasive species are becoming a problem uh, on tree species. It used to be we'd get one new tree disease about every five years. In the last 15 years, we're getting one every one to two years. It's a major issue, basically. Uh, and so we have to really worry about invasive species and diseases, as well as climate change. And the others are still factors that we need to bring into, into account, basically. This is why when they went to Nagoya a few years ago, uh, they, were, they were asking, what should our biodiversity goals be? Now I'm talking globally rather than the UK, but Europe had the same goal. And the goal fundamentally was, how do you halt and reverse the, the loss of biodiversity and the loss of degradation of ecosystem services by 2020? And they wanted the same goal as what they had in 2010, and that was to halt and reverse the loss of biodiversity. And it was actually theoretically impossible. Every indirect driver is still going up. Increase in population, increase in economic wealth, um, uh, poor socio-political factors, etc., leading to more and more habitat change, more and more pollution, more and more over-exploitation, more climate change, and an increase in invasive species just due to international trade. And so fundamentally, people <coughs> are asking to halt the loss of biodiversity, and yet all the drivers are going totally and utterly in the wrong direction. So we then went and did exactly the same analysis of looking at what the drivers were with respect to the various ecosystem services. So fundamentally what we've recognised is we're going in the right direction, but we've still got a long way to go without any question whatsoever. And of course a growing population, a wealthier population and human-induced climate change will bring very many cha challenges in the next few years basically which means that fundamentally to reverse the decline in ecosystem services, we're going to have to have very different ways of managing our ecosystems. And one of the big challenges, how can we increase food production while decreasing the environmental footprint? So how do we move to sustainable intensification, not only here in the UK, uh, but throughout Europe and actually globally? And that is, I think, going to be one of our big challenges, is this whole challenge of sustainable intensification in, in food and farming. There is no question that between now and 2050, globally, we're going to have to be able to meet a doubling of food demand. Population is going to go up uh, from about 7 billion today to around 9 to 10 billion by 2050. 
world GDP, a flawed concept I know, but will almost certainly go up by another factor of three. Therefore, the demand for food will almost certainly double in the next uh, 50 years. The question is, how do we meet that demand, basically? And I think it's going to be without, not only without any further environmental degradation, but even more, with less of a footprint on the environment. Now, the key point is we now can look at basically economic and participatory techniques to take into account both monetary and non-monetary value in understanding these ecosystem services and bring that knowledge into everyday decision making. So we now, I think, have it, the tools. The question is, is there the political will uh, to address this particular issue? And obviously the self-evident statement is at the very top. If we do not take into consideration the valuation of non-market goods in decision making, it will have less efficient resource allocation and very negative uh, consequences for social well-being, basically. If we can start to recognise the value of ecosystem services, we can get the UK to move to a more sustainable uh, future. That obviously statement can be made at the global level as well. I mean, there's no question whatsoever about that. So what we decide to do was actually to use some plausible futures for the UK, very similar to what we did globally in the Millennium <coughs> Ecosystem Assessment, and sort of say, what could the future look like in the UK over the next 50 years, basically? And what are the implications of different decisions we might make now and in the immediate future? So we came up with six storylines. You can argue against all of them. We won't realise any one of them. We'll have some hybrid, particularly. So we had the green and pleasant land, which is basically, I want to hug biodiversity and I want to protect it. And so what you can see, we actually asked ourselves the question for each of our six storylines, to what degree was there environmental awareness in the uh, storyline? To what degree did the UK have adaptive capacity? To what degree did we have a footprint on overseas? To what degree did we take it, did the storyline meet the issues of human well-being? And to what, degree, uh, to what degree of governance did you need? So green and pleasant land, basically, was one where we really did try very much to say we want to protect UK biodiversity. But, of course, one of its real problems is, if you look at the bottom left-hand corner, it has a very large footprint on the ecological footprint overseas. In other words, we're protecting our biodiversity and we're buying the food from abroad, buying the timber from abroad. Nature at Work was one where we said, boy, we really want to manage our ecosystems holistically. We want to take into account not only the provisioning services, but the regulating services and the cultural services. And we want to try and almost optimise them, basically. It has a very low overseas ecological footprint. It's not that we're self-sufficient. We are still a trading nation. But we actually wanted to manage the ecosystems in a holistic way. So it rates very high on environmental awareness, very high on human well-being. It does need regulation, though an inconvenient truth for this particular coalition, and it's a, it's a system that's actually got a lot of adaptive capacity. Local stewardship is you allow all decisions to be made locally, and so, you, and so it's, sort of, it's not a bad one, it's a, a balance of environmental awareness, a balance of governance, etc. Go with the flow is business as usual, whatever you mean by that. You know, was the new rules and policies we've put in place, we've run them out for another 25 to 50 years. National security is one, boy, we don't want to believe in anyone's going to help us. We want to become self-sufficient. We want to grow nearly all of our own food. We want to grow most of our, uh, 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 grow most of our own timber. <coughs> Almost no overseas ecological footprint there because we're becoming self-sufficient. Uh, a lot of governance involved in it, a lot of regulation, 
very little environmental awareness, we're going to grow the food, it doesn't matter what happens to biodiversity, it's not very good on human well-being in the broad sense of the word. And world markets is we throw all regulations out. I wouldn't quite say that's exactly what the coalition government's doing, but it is fairly anti-regulation at the moment. It says we just want economic growth for the sake of economic growth. We want to deregulate everything. And so in this particular one, basically, um, we have a huge overseas footprint. We buy from wherever we care. Uh, we change all of the uh, protected areas in the UK. The green belt disappears, etc. So you can argue with any one of these futures, of course. Let me just test my understanding. Um, it's a little counterintuitive to me that the overseas uh, ecological footprint is almost as bad for green and present land as it is for world markets. Is that because we're letting other countries do the bad stuff? Exactly. Yeah. And we put no, we put no sustainable criteria on where we buy it from. We just want to go for the cheapest goods wherever they are. And so we're ex it's another form of exporting our footprint, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, any one of those futures you can argue with, but it is, it, it's an interesting range of what the plausible, of what a future could potentially look like. So where do we start? Well, what's the current distribution of habitats? We looked at it on a scale of one kilometre by one kilometre. So we've mapped every habitat in the UK very precisely. We've got superb data. Most other countries in the world haven't. But, so we know what the distribution of the UK habitats is today. We then said under these various worlds, uh, business as usual, uh, this is WN World's Markets, this is Nature at Work. And I'm going to focus more on these two worlds. In many respects, they're more the two extreme worlds. What, so on the left-hand side, <coughs> you have what, how do we use our land today, the so-called baseline. I'm going to leave this uh, presentation here so you can look at it in detail. So what percentage have we got in uh, fresh water? What percentage in grassland? What percentage in urban land? What percentage in farmland? If it's green, it means that that particular habitat has a larger area. If it's red, it's got a decreased area. So if you look at nature at work, which is here, these two here, we've effectively got... Uh, da, 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 da. Let me make sure I'm correct on what I'm saying. Yeah, We've got an increase in uh, woodlands and we've got a very significant decrease in agriculture. We've tried to have an increase in most of our natural ecological systems and a decrease in our agricultural system. If you move to some of the others, as you see here in world's markets, there's a decrease in most natural habitats and there's not much change in agriculture. It's a relative statement. So one needs to look at it. It's our best guess through expert judgment in each of those different worlds, how would we use our land in the UK? So then we ask ourselves, what would happen to the ecosystem services? Well, this is the present world. And as I said, about 30-35% of the current ecosystem services are currently degrading, and I would actually say not possibly, are actually degrading. Then there's another about 30%, even 35%, where they're roughly static. And the green part is, as I've said earlier, about 20% are improving. So we then said, if I play out all of these other, uh, these other worlds, in world market, we now see probably 70% of our ecosystems would probably be declining or possibly be declining. In national security, very, very similar, about 70% <coughs> would either be declining or possibly declining. But in the other worlds, especially nature at work, green and pleasant land, local stewardship, we would actually estimate that many of these ecosystem services in general would be improvement relative to today. So we played these scenarios out to say, do we think these ecosystem services will improve or not? 
So then we asked ourselves, why should we bother with an economic analysis? We don't need to tell any of you guys this. Well, clearly, free competitive mar markets are highly efficient allocators of market price resources. The problem is that many of our ecosystem services don't have a market price, and that is the fundamental problem. And therefore, we actually are not managing our resources in the most efficient way because of a lack of market prices on many of these services, basically. Therefore, it's quite likely that the decisions we've taken in the past and ones we're likely to take in the future are not the optimum decisions, basically. So the question is, so this is why we want to at least look at those various plausible uh, futures to ask ourselves, how would you make decisions and which of those various worlds uh, might you want, basically. Um, so we use that, or Ian Bateman led this work. I, as I said, I'm not an economist. Uh, so we looked at cost-benefit analysis and what we said to ourselves, if we're going to use it, we must consider the wider, wider effects of any investment option. But we also look to see how decisions have been made in the past, and particularly what I've shown here is the failures. So, for example, pillar one of the common agricultural policy certainly increased productivity and production in the UK, but it failed to take into account any of the externalities. So when we've done, looked at this, we've taken all of the services into account as a way of taking what I call the wider effects of any investment option. Second one is we need to look at options. A classical failure in the UK is when they think of transport app, uh, options, they think about road expansion, they look at one road versus another road system, often think, often don't think about rail, etc. So quite often you don't take a complete view of every option that's available to solve a particular problem. So we've used the scenarios as a way of trying to look broadly at how the UK and the options the UK has as it moves forward. The third thing is quite often we didn't look at the spatial dimensions, especially of natural resources. So, for example, we have the entry-level stewardship scheme of the Common Agricultural Policy, and it gives exactly the same flat payment to farmers wherever they are in the UK, and yet we know that the environmental outcomes are very specific to different regions, basically. So another failure of not thinking spatially and the last one is it's some of these resources are very, very hard to value. Had, the services are okay, but how do you value biodiversity per se? And we don't have an answer to it. What we did say is people clearly have a value and a moral objective not to lose biodiversity. They don't like species going extinct. So as we played out our scenarios, we asked ourselves, would any of these scenarios lead to the extinction of species how could we avoid it in the most cost-effective way? So we didn't value biodiversity per se, but we put some criteria on our storylines of how to try and avoid extinction. So they were some of the factors that we took into account as we looked at the economic valuation. We then said to ourselves, OK, how do you set up the conceptual framework? What we immediately said is, what do we humans care about? Well, what we care about are the goods. They're the things that we actually use. Food, fibre, energy, drinking water, recreation, tourism. Uh, we like an equitable climate. We want flood control, ev erosion control. And then there's things such as aesthetic, spiritual, religious value. So we said, OK, so if they're the goods we care about, let's work backwards. What are the final ecosystem services that actually give those various goods? And then we recognise that you don't have to value everything. You don't have to value soil, uh, soil formation. You don't have to value nutrient cycling. And the reason is, these things here 
underpin many of these ecosystem services there. So you don't have to value all services. You only have to value the final service that gives you a particular good. But then, of course, you have to say, well, that particular good, when you buy it in the marketplace, has lots of other capital inputs. So food, we know what the f how much food costs in the marketplace, but you've got, to sort of, you've got to harvest it, you've got to transport it, you've got to process it, you've got to package it, you've got to sell it. Same with fibre, same with energy, etc. So we looked effectively at the value of these various goods, we worked out what the capital inputs were, and then that, by deduction, that actually gave us the economic value of the ecosystem service itself. So that allowed us to get to the ecosystem service. We also recognised, however, there are other pluses and minuses that you can't necessarily put into an economic framework. Uh, mental health, shared social values, different from individual social values, that people find that each, uh, each of us individually can put, through uh, stated preferences, willingness to pay, a value on some of these ecosystems and their services. But when you get people together, the shared social value is often quite different uh, from individual valuation. So this is something we've marginally scratched the surface of. And so we're going to put far more effort into it in the second phase. So we recognise the importance of shared social value, but we've only just started scratching the surface of what that really means. So that was our conceptual framework for thinking through the value of ecosystem services. Yes, well, you have mentioned sort of uncertainty and vulnerability of, of ecosystems. So, presumably, a less biodiverse ecosystem could be more vulnerable to yeah. disease and collapse, and that might be a, a In fact, we're going to look at that in the second phase. We, what we did is we looked at the flows of services, arguing no, none of them are clearly near a tipping point today. Okay. We're going to go back and actually ask if that is a fair. Now, in some local areas, we've gone past tipping points, they've collapsed. But we've assumed at the moment uh, that we're not right close to tipping points for some of these services. But that's a very good point, and that will be in the very next phase of what we work on. So it's very much a flows calculation without enough effort on the stocks, basically. So the value of extinction is just the value individuals apparently seem to. Yeah, well, what we didn't even value, what we. we Ian in particular hates the concept of a stated preference. He thinks it's complete crap and willingness to pay. I mean, I'm overstating it. He can say, but he has significant concerns. I'll phrase it that way. <laughs> Very significant concerns. He doesn't think you end up with good numbers at all. Uh, so we, we avoided it. So what, how did we do it? Well, clearly for things like food, raw materials, energy, we used adjusted market price. Um, for things like uh, pollution pest control, it was the, what is the contribution to output pollination, what does it contribute to food output, for, exact, for example. Uh, avoided costs, if you've got more woodlands or use different agricultural practices, you can effectively have less greenhouse gas emissions, therefore you avoid climate change, therefore there's an avoided cost of climate change, for example. Um, observed behaviour behavior was used for things like recreation, tourism, amenity values. Meaning willingness to pay. Yeah, but uh, one of the ones we did is we, uh, Susan Marata from um, LSE did a nice study on a million houses. What was the additional value of a house if it was next to a river, next to a park, etc.? And she analysed uh, literally a million houses and the value and sort of did some nice regressions. And so, yeah, what were people willing to pay in this particular case extra for a house that was in a nice environment, basically? Yeah, exactly. And the last one we used was stated preferences, basically, as well. So uh, Ian and his team, I can take no credit for it whatsoever, uh, used these various approaches for the various ecosystem services. 
So then we said, okay, we're not, we've done it for all six worlds. I'm only going to show you the results for world, market, and nature world, because they tend to actually be the two extremes, basically. So we know effectively how agriculture is effectively today, and we use far, farm, uh, farm gross margin. And so that effectively is uh, pounds per hectare per year. We've got absolute values, but uh, that's it there. We then said, okay, what happens in world market and nature at work? We've done the say the other four as well. Where do you gain and where do you lose? So green is you get large gains. Well, world market really wants to optimise economic output. So fundamentally, they really focus on agriculture, same as uh, national security. And then nature at work, however, said, no, we're going to really look across the whole range and actually we put far more work in protection of some of the natural ecosystems at the expense of agriculture. So in general, there were some areas that did gain, not massively gain, but many areas actually lost. And so, and we'll come back to that in a little while. We then looked at effectively greenhouse gas emissions. Clearly in world market, we've got, we've got a lot of agricultural production, a lot of nitrogen fertilizers. Um, effectively, we didn't put much effort on woodlands, so we didn't put effort on effectively carbon sequestration in the soils and above ground biomass. Whereas in nature at work, we've got more woodlands. We've actually decreased agricultural production, therefore decreased nitrogen, use of nitrogen fertilisers. So in general, uh, we have far less greenhouse gas emissions over large parts of England and, England and Wales, and therefore there was a net benefit and avoided cost of climate change. We looked at recreation. Uh, we've got more woodlands. We've got more grasslands. We're protecting the environment. Uh, our green belts are all protected. So clearly the recreational value in nature at work where we've really tried to conserve and protect our nature uh, relative to world markets where we've got rid of most of the green belt, etc. We've built up our cities. Uh, we haven't bothered about uh, green space in our cities. So again, nature at work tended to be a better scenario uh, than world market. And then we looked at urban green space. And once again... In nature at work, one put a lot of effort into making sure that the cities maintained the parks, maintained allotments, etc. Whereas in world markets, the way we played it out, the allotments disappeared, uh, much of the green space disappeared. In fact, we have lost most of our parks and most of our allotments since the Second World War. The evidence is incredible, the way we've lost parks and we've lost that. So we've looked at then uh, urban green space. Um, and then we looked at biodiversity. There was no good measure of biodiversity, so we used two measures. One was the general bird population, and that's what's shown here, and the other one was farmland birds. And so uh, we looked at both as indicators of biodiversity, but we put no economic valuation on it. We purely tried to ask which of the various, uh, various storylines might be best for birds and best for farming. This is, a, this is a measure that DEFRA uses to measure its effects on biodiversity. I think it's a limited concept personally, but it's not, you know, not totally without value. So again, so we've looked again between uh, nature at work and uh, world's market. So that was the approach. Now, as you can see, we've only looked economically at four <laughs> services. There's another dozen we should look at. Water quantity, water quality, forest output, timber, etc. And we're going to do several of these in the second phase. So it is a very partial analysis, but it leads to some very obvious results, basically. Which, so here we then sort of turned it into numbers. Uh, everything was done on a one kilometre by one kilometre projection. So we looked effectively as a function of the storyline at the top, go with the flow, green and pleasant land, local stewardship, 
national security, uh, nature at work and world markets, what happened to the agricultural output and obviously national security and world markets had the biggest single gain. Nature at work, because we wanted to optimise across all, uh, all services, actually had the largest loss. So if you only focus on market value, you say, boy, nature, uh, national security and world markets are indeed our optimal future. That's what we should try and put the policies, the technologies into account. But we also went through the other ones of the avoided costs of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, recreation, green space. If you add them all up, then suddenly nature at work becomes by far uh, the most positive and effectively world markets becomes the least, which is why I showed the two as the two extremes. So market alone, you would end up with our national security or world markets. If you take all of the ecosystems, the ones we've looked at, then you come up with a complete reversal, basically. And so if you take market values only, you'd want national security or world markets. If you take all of the services that we looked at, only, only four of them I know, but we've mentally thought through, if we bring in water, if we bring in all the other services, we don't think the picture will change at all. And in fact, we're going to do some of that quantification of them. We've just started. Ian, again, is leading a different economics team. It's a slightly different scene from the first one, but we've just started doing some work. So the key take-home message is we've got to value both market and non-market ecosystem services if we're going to manage our ecosystems in a sustainable manner. Ian did a very interesting paper many, many years ago. Farmers are rational. There's no question whatsoever about that. So we asked ourselves, what, and most, much of Wales is farmed today, if I look at Wales today farming, what's the value of the land in pounds per hectare per year? And you end up with this picture of Wales at the top right-hand corner. <laughs> you then did the totally hypothetical uh, question, what if I turn all of Wales into, a, into a, a forest? What would happen? And actually the Welsh thought this was pure colonialism, basically. Uh, and in fact, he got some hate mail over it. I mean, he really did get hate mail over it for doing a hypothetical calculation. Recreation. The darker it is, the higher the value. Slightly different unions. What you see is a lot of black down by Cardiff and up by Liverpool. Fundamentally, if you've got, and obviously the woodlands give you recreation, if you've got the woodlands self-evident, of course, near high population centres, there's a significant amount of value in recreation. We also said, ah, now, if you've got a meaningful carbon price, and we use something like the mi middle of what we've used there in the European trading system, basically, uh, probably about 15, 20 euros per tonne, um, then suddenly there is incredible value in carbon storage in both soils as well as above ground biomass, and there's some value in the timber. So he actually did this hypothetical, like turn all of Wales from agricultural land into a, a, into, um, into a forest, and it is no question over nearly all of uh, Wales they would be much better off if you'd actually turn Wales into a uh, forest. Um, <laughs> the Welsh didn't really like this, but it, is, but it just simply, if you get away with the perversions of pillar one of the common agricultural policy, where you've got these stupid uh, production uh, things, and you put true value in carbon, and you can capture the value of the recreation, you would be much better off in Wales if you almost did no agriculture and you had a forested system. Uh, the Welsh were not overly enthusiastic by this, but if you could capture that, I think this is the key question. 
you can actually do these academic valuation exercises, but they're actually meaningless unless you can capture the value to the local landowner. So the question is, after you've done all the valuation that we did, can you create the markets to capture that value? And I think that is, and so that actually shows you where the forests are today, and that's where they basically should be. And so as you can see, there's no correlation whatsoever in Wales. So last couple of slides. If we're going to move to a more sustainable uh, situation, we need some major changes in individual behaviour, societal behaviour, and we therefore need a much more integrated approach to ecosystem management. This is the inconvenient truth, and that is exactly the way I uh, said it when I met my Secretary of State and Oliver Letwin, who's an economist in the Cabinet Office, and I said the only way we're going to move to this world is you need the right ensemble of regulations, financial incentives and behaviour change. And you've got to involve all actors. It isn't just the government, it isn't just the civil society, it's not just the private sector. You need to really think through the role of different actors with the right enabling environment and regulation is part of it. So clearly what we need to do is we need to integrate. We've got to move away from thinking about a single sector and this is the problem with all governments, whether it's in the UK or nationally, internationally, with stovepipe. Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, Department of Agriculture, uh, uh, sort of Department of Housing, etc. With all of these issues, it says we've got to integrate across sectors. We've got to think both spatially and temporally. You can see from all of those maps, any storyline play out totally differently across England, across the Wales and across Scotland. So one policy does not fit the whole of the UK. Therefore, the question is, how can we design policies that recognise uh, spatial uh, inhomogeneity? We need collaborations, I've already said, across stakeholders, basically. And we need, in, as I've already said, a combination of regulations, behaviour change, financial incentives. We then looked at what the various actors were. We looked at the foundational options, the enabling options, and instrumental. So foundational knowledge generation, the enabling ones are such as legislation policies and the instrumental things like markets, incentives, technologies, etc. So we sort of provided, again, in a non-normative prescriptive way to government, how they should actually think through how you get alliances in each of the, uh, in the, each of the three tiers. Did it have an effect? An amazing effect. Seven days after we issued our report, this report came out. It was the first white paper in England in 20 years on the natural environment. Now, it isn't they took seven days to write the report. As we actually developed the, uh, na the, the uh, National Ecosystem Assessment, they actually worked on a policy paper. And fundamentally, on the first 45 pages of this report, um, our, our document, the NEA, <coughs> is mentioned on every single page about how the intellectual framework for uh, this particular government document, which is how to manage our eco, it was mentioned. The other document that played a key role was Making Space for Nature, that was chaired by uh, Sir John Lawton, basically. And the bottom line is, the document, uh, you know, is a couple of hundred pages, a hundred action items, simply says, we've got to move to a more integrated approach to manage our land, which fully takes into account this ensemble of ecosystem services. The Green Book now recognises that they, that they need to consider the ecosystem approach in all new UK government policies, and it talks about valuing the provisioning, the regulating, the cultural, 
uh, services. So it is actually explicitly in the Green Book now. Um, we're going to have a second phase. We're going to do more economic analysis. We're going to look at more than just those four, uh, four services we looked at. But also what Ian wants to do with his team is look at uncertainty. We use central values and we really want to look at what the uncertainty is. I didn't mention it, but for every one of our six scenarios, we had a high and low climate scenario. I'm a bit suspicious that our models are not good enough to do it. Ian's fairly convinced his model can simulate the implications of climate change on all of these services. I haven't shown it. I'm still not convinced that any of the models are sophisticated enough. They tend to use mean climate. And what we really care about is changes in the variability and the extremes. And so I'm a little nervous about our climate modelling, although and I'll, we need to challenge the models to see they may be better than I think they are. But we did look at high and low climate change, which we need to do. We are going to look more at the cultural ecosystem services and in particular shared social values. And the question is, how do you, when you go to a minister, you can tell them what all the economic values are. You also have to tell them if you can capture those economic values by creating markets. But also, how should they think about also the shared social values where you can't put an economic value in? So we want to think through that a little bit more, basically. We'll do more scenario work, and we'll link the scenarios particular to particular policies, technologies, and behavioural change. We're going to develop some practical tools that both government and the business sector can use to interpret our information to make uh, decisions. Um, it's not only got DEFRA funding, but... No, ESRC and now the Arts and Humanities Research Council got really interested in this stuff. So you can see two of the ones that look at social values, etc., got really interested. Welsh government's also <laughs> putting in a little bit of money, <laughs> and the Scottish government is going to put that in kind work in. So that's the second phase. The conclusion is we already have more than enough information to manage our ecosystems that sensibly, basically, there's no question. Uh, there's no question, however, improving our understanding uh, still remains a priority, but we can do a hell of a lot better than we're doing now. Uh, it's quite clear that we have to take both market and non-market uh, values into account. So basically, we've got the wrong economic system at the moment, but we also need to see how do we bring in other issues, value to health and social values. It makes it even more important to look at all of the services, not just the provisioning and the bottom line is exactly what Partha and every, everybody's been saying for years and years and years. GDP is a measure of economic activity, but it's certainly not a measure of sustainable economic activity. And we should really be looking at the wealth of a nation. And that is bringing together the issue of built capitals, financial capital, human, social and natural capital. Thank you. So it's the non-economist view of how we're looking at economics. <laughs> What we tried to look at was effectively 
how did the value of a service vary spatially? So, for example, if you had another few hectares of forest outside of London or Manchester or Liverpool, it probably had a high value. As you increase more and more the aerial extent of a forest outside London, it decreased over time. It decreased with that aerial extent. If you put, but if you put another sort of few hectares of forest in the north of Scotland, it had no real value whatsoever. There's already so much forest there. So we took into account both the spatial extent of especially on recreation and how much of it you put. Whereas with carbon, it doesn't matter where you sequester the carbon or where you reduce greenhouse gas emissions, everywhere you can, the value is the same basically because it's a global asset. Right? So we try to look at the spatial dimensions for all of, uh, for literally all of them. Whether we've done it right is another question, but that's what we did at least to attempt, or what Ian and the team attempted. So this geographic dis difference of the marginal value also in your assessment across the next 50 years, did you also consider possible sort of change, temporal change in the marginal value of these things? Or do you just take the sort of that shadow price that you've managed to calculate? Because these scenarios obviously are massive non-marginal changes. Yeah. If you look at, I mean, one map was orange, the other was green, or something like that. Now, at, at the moment, it was a much simpler one of keeping it constant. So we use the same price for carbon out for 50s, clearly the wrong assumption. If, if, if the world gets to grips with climate change, the value of carbon is going to go up significantly, basically. Um, equally, food prices are going to change. And the basic interesting point was, how will food price change? So we left it constant. What we need to do in the second phase is look at the uncertainty or the sensitivity around each of those. So the first one, as I say, it was relatively straightforward. We will now do a sensitivity analysis to change in carbon price over time. So think through how international negotiations may play out over time, think through effectively how food price may play. So we might want to use something like the IFPRI model, the International Food Policy Research Institute model, uh, part of the CGIR system in, um, in, uh, in Washington DC, where they've looked at most uh, food prices, their view is without climate change, the price of many commodities might go up by 30 to 50% with climate change may be double. So we might try and look at some of the big models to see what they suggest of how food price might change, effectively how carbon might change, etc. Uh, also, of course, if there was a significant, if the climate models were right, that the UK is going to become hotter in summer and drier in summer, it may actually be good for tourism. And so how would that play out? I mean, there's not much evidence of it at the moment, that's for sure. But so we really need to think through carefully I would say this is an important first step, but there's a long way to go. Yeah, I had yeah. a question about, <clears throat> it relates to something that came up earlier about international trade in these services. Yeah. And, um, well, two aspects of it occurred to me. One is, biodiversity doesn't seem to be a sensible thing to, to worry about mainly in the context of the UK. It matters enormously if a species becomes extinct globally, but it doesn't seem to me to matter anywhere near as much if a particular species of wildfire is only found in, 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 in northern France rather than in, in East Anglia. Um, so there is a way to relax the, the, the constraint that you imposed. As I understood, the constraint you imposed was that the biodiversity is always going up. Um, or not, we're not, we, not, not going down. We're not ex having anything go extinct, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, but going, going extinct in the UK is distinct from going extinct globally. Correct. So, so Correct. one thing to, to think about now, I'm thinking particularly about the global, sorry, the, the international trade in, yeah. in, in, in biodiversity. Um, you know, if, it were, if there was a big gain to the UK 
in, in increasing biodiversity globally to allow some UK species to go extinct in the UK, yeah. then that seems to be a way of relaxing that constraint, which may be, be very helpful. That's the first point. And the second point, if you're going to trade environmental services internationally, then it seems you have another constraint you can impose on your trading partner, which is to say, okay, we're not going to buy all our food from you, but you have to source that food sustainably. Yeah. And we do that already. Yeah. So if we do it already, why isn't it in the model? Because it's almost certainly the case that getting rid of, uh, you know, if the UK withdrew from the Common Agricultural Policy yeah. and said, we'll trade, we'll, we'll trade at market prices, but we'll trade only with sustainable producers, then that would seem to me to raise welfare both in the UK and also raise um, global welfare. So I'm puzzled as to why that's not in the model. Okay. At the moment, we only did a UK model. We now need to embed the UK in a broader regional and global model. There's no question about that. We do have a chapter on the international dimensions. So at the moment in the UK, we produce about 100, 100 million tonnes of biomass per year, mainly food, but a little bit of timber. We import 50 million tonnes per year and we export 20. And you're absolutely right. What we can do is we could be more reliant on foreign sources of biomass, whether it's food, timber, or bioenergy, and we could just simply put sustainability criteria on them. Mm. And so that, so it could be that without a criteria, we could have an adverse effect internationally, but with the right criteria, it might be perfectly reasonable to import more than we do now. The interesting question, I think it's particularly interesting in food at the moment, and I don't know the answer to it. At the moment, as I said, we import about 35% of food, most of it from Europe, but 10% internationally. How stable is that policy of food security? As we move forward, climate change, if we're correct, is going to put some real stress on food production in many parts of the world. Some of the parts we currently import from. Southern Europe could become incredibly arid, very, very arid. Are the food supplies of where we currently source from going to be available? What, what are the pressures from China and India as they become wealthier and wealthier, buying up various parts of the world, literally buying them up, also pushing up the price of food, as they have done for energy. So I think one of the interesting questions we've got anyway, and we need to look at it in more sophisticated models than we've used, is, is our current policy of food security in the UK a feeling fairly comfortable about producing about 65% of our food? Is that a good policy as we move forward in the face of climate change and in the face of major socioeconomic changes in the emerging economies. I mean, and so I think we've got to become much more sophisticated with our modelling and actually play, actually embed the UK model in a much more a set of global modelling exercises. So I think there's far more work to be done. That's why I think this is a good first step, but there's far more to go. I mean, the message out of this one is straightforward. We're not looking at ecosystems and their services correctly. We've put too much focus on market value only. We've got to recognise non-market value as, as being extremely important in the way we make our decisions. But how sophisticated this model is, or this modelling effort, I think we've got to do far more, which is why we're doing a second phase. One of the other things that the outgrowth of this work, which is really good, is we now have a natural capital committee, uh, which uh, Dieter Helm is going to chair, that will report directly to the Chancellor of the Exchequer to try and influence, <laughs> try and influence our thinking in the Treasury Department. That's why I say try and influence. <laughs> Do you have a question, Ben? No. Uh, one quick question. Uh, then a, a similar consideration. So, I mean, looking in an international context, the marginal value of an extra, uh, ex 
Terran forest and in the rainforest, we, yeah. we might the, we might be better to protect farmland with that than for um, using an acre farmland. I think this is an interesting question. What's our philosophy going to be? Um, there's no question the Prime Minister suddenly got very, very interested, not only in well-being, as you, all of you know, and, and so has Ban Ki-moon, but he's also got very, very interested in international biodiversity. Now, the question is, and two very different philosophies, do we focus on hotspots and bilateral work with hotspots, the concept put forward by E.O. Wilson, Norman Myers, and Conservation International, or should our effort be much more on the broader ecosystem approach uh, rather than species. Uh, I would, you can combine the two philosophies, but there is a discussion going on. How can the UK lead and show leadership on biodiversity internationally and how, where would you put those investments? I don't think it's an idol. I think we can potentially do work on hotspots, but I would also argue the most important thing we could do is think through what is the right policy framework. How do you do value? How do you do valuation? How do you create markets, payment for ecosystem services, etc.? You need to catch a plane. Yeah, unfortunately, yes, to talk about sustainability. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Now, wouldn't you, and, and, and you're, you're comfortable about the fact that you care about your background, and the others are not being included. I'll, I'll tell you why I'm making that separation. So suppose you just need this, uh, your means your, your, your dynasty, your nation. Then, would it be, you may, you, in order to safeguard your things, you may have to do things you both don't like because you're, you're negotiating with a party who is crazy, let's mm -hmm. say. But at the, why would you wish to change your normative take regarding what is yeah. your national well-being because of that? It's one of those unfortunate things. Yeah. You'll be saying, you know, life is bad. We have to make, we have to do things we don't like very much to preserve the thing that we really care about, which is national well-being, because we happen to be mm -hmm. negotiating with a malevolent god. Let's say. Let me. I mean, you you did suggest at one point today that it was useful not just to sort of accept or reject problems <coughs> for their own sake, but to see where they led. And the extent to which you're willing to compromise your own ideal ethical principles to get a better ethical end is something that it seems to me you would want to, you know, try out alternative scenarios, and it might depend on how many dictates there were in your personal world. But, um, so I, I accept that it's a clear conceptual distinction. But I'm also interested. A lot of that. Lot of that oh, we have a professor of moral philosophy here, but yes. there are moral philosophers who think the contingent world has an enormous influence, should have an enormous influence on our, mm -hmm. our normative reasoning. Mm -hmm. We tend in economics to have a clear distinction, and yeah. you're questioning that, and I think I. I well, I mean, <coughs> to say just one more, I don't want to monopolize the discussion, but I mean, in the lab, one finds quite a few categorical imperative people, and they're the kind that I'm arguing against, people who assume that other people are gonna also follow, or act as if they were assuming other people were also gonna carry out their part of it. And you find very few people like me in lab, in lab experiments. So, so maybe, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what that means. The, the position I, I was uh, leaning towards is something I'm, I'm clear about, but this is how it goes. I think, like any other system of uh, inquiry, we don't know the implications uh, of our values we carry with us in various types of situations. So it is perhaps, uh, least I think we don't really affirm you or we shouldn't have a firm view because we don't know the implications. And sometimes the consequences should rebound on us to say, well, aren't these the right trade-offs we start off with? And these experiments I was doing, these uh, numerical experiments, yeah. were designed to do that. I don't know what delta should be. I don't know what capital G should be. Yeah. What combination is going to give me, roughly speaking, yeah. a reasonable take in a variety of worlds that I can conceive of? But it's interesting that's, that that's, that's that whole view, I mean, you know what's reasonable in your heart. That shouldn't that really be the goal to somehow find a way of articulating how you make those judgments? But how would you know uh, with 
see, you, you're formulating, you're formalizing a ethical system until you play it against two different worlds, you wouldn't know the consequences. And the consequences are rebounding back to give you a sense of what you actually value. Um, I think this interplay, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, John, but didn't Rawls have a notion of it, what do you use the expression called reflective equilibrium? Mm -hmm. And I saw that as something like a, ah, no, it is supposed to be reflective, not bouncing it back off the actual world. As if, I mean, the idea of reflective equilibrium is you've got quite a number of different thoughts, yeah. ethical thoughts, not all entirely consistent with each other. Yes. So what you do is you figure out the consequences of this one and that one, you find where the conflicts are, you try and you adjust your beliefs yes. so as to try and bring them into a coherent form in what seems the most satisfactory way. But you are doing it against contingencies, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I, I may have misunderstood what you said, but I thought you said you've got these ideas, you don't exactly know where they're going to lead, so you you act according to the ideas, see what happens in the world, and then revise your ideas accordingly. Now that, I mean, that may, I've got nothing against that, but I don't think that could count as reflective equilibrium, because it's not entirely reflection. There's oh, no, trial and error. I didn't mean that you try it out In the planning literature, there were two versions, if you remember, the 1960s, 70s planning literature, was whether the iteration takes place in real time, or whether it takes place in mythical time, and you arrive at the solution to your uh, iteration, and then you bang. Uh, I had the latter in mind when I was thinking, okay, that's what we were doing here. Trial because we don't believe really, we value three or four different things. Yeah. Uh, and I think in many ways the Kukman's actions are a very nice uh, platform to practice that. Yeah. I'm much more interested in his attitude to ethical thinking than the actions themselves because he's playing out one against the other. And he could have put his theorems in the form of a possibility result. Yes. Right? He could have simply said that another action is equal treatment. Yes. And then bang, you have a theorem which says, you, like arrows in possibility theory, you have an impossibility theorem. So you, something has to give. And I suppose he, in advance, he gave up. Anyway, that was the spirit in which I was trying to do. Can you thoughts on these axioms? For example, the, <coughs> the Kupman's result with this sort of um, time consistency axiom. So, in a sense, what is the where is the sort of moral imperative to stick to, for example, just time consistency to pick on, on one particular thing? Because in a sense, Kuhlman's is thinking of essentially one individual who doesn't want to be seen as sort of a reneging on what it is that he did, right? But if we just, uh, just accept the fact that one individual is not going to live through that kind of time, then to a certain extent, there's no reason really to believe that the objective, primitively now, is going to be time consistent. Obviously, he might, the individual might then want to act in such a way as the sort of contingently things pan out the way he would want it according to that non-time consistent um, uh, objective, like you know, all the sort of hyperbolic sort of literature, right? So I don't see why normatively time consistency is really an imperative, or is, is it even, or do you think it would be? To have to have, but just from a normal point of view for the objective to be time consistent. Um, I'm going to open this up, it's hardly, uh, this is way beyond my um, uh, competence to give you something about it. Then. So, 
what we're thinking of, we've got, a, we've got, we, we're adopting a relativistic ethics. So what we're doing is we're making the value function that we're promoting be something that depends on where we stand, in particular on what the date is. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be sort of essential if we're going to be doing pure discounting. I mean, it is possible to do pure discounting in an impartial way, um, but that means you've got to do it backwards uh, as well as forwards. So you think, you've got to think that the past was enormously important compared to the present. So it's, it's really relativistic discounting that we're thinking of, so that our value function depends on where we stand. Now, it's quite common to think, to believe relativism between different people, say, that one person's value function could be relative to another, sorry, a person's value function could be relative to her, and a different person could have a different value function. But the special thing about temporal relativity, relativity to times, is that we move from one time to another. So we pass through different standpoints. And that's what threatens, this is what uses a dynamic inconsistency. And it really, it seems to me that it does threaten incoherence. Um, it's, it's very weird to think that it's okay to think this way. On Monday, you decide to do something in the full knowledge that on Friday, you will think that was an entirely wrong thing to do. That leads to a sort of personal incoherence, which it's hard to believe can be a morally correct position to be in. Well, I wonder whether one, uh, I, I, I share your view, and of course the way we resolve it, uh, if we are set up a model like that, uh, we resolve it by saying we play a game against our future selves. Future selves being the final But I wonder whether part of it, in a way, I am a different person from what I was the day before yesterday. But I wonder whether the, the, the uh, trigger mechanism for this change is not the passage of time per se, but the experiences I've had over the two periods. And that's a very different. Yeah. Uh, so you would say that you're, you're mapping from. Uh, date to overconsumption of streams. Let's let's use that as a vulgar form of the, the object of exercise from that date, are a function of the experiences up to that date. And uh, then you have a very different picture. Yeah. You can even anticipate the changes that will take place in you, in cognizance of the experiences in principle. I don't mean drug addiction, by the way. Thinking of the fact that you might uh, take to, you might your preferences for poetry might change after having sampled poetry. Sometimes, I would say. So some kinds of poetry. Uh, <laughs> but that still leaves uh, you have a problem in the sense that I think there may not be a way of avoiding the fact that the early person, early selves have an undue influence over future selves. Because, of course, the choices by the temporal nature of, it, of things, you, you have to make choices now, for yourself now. But if that's going to affect your uh, preferences tomorrow day after, and you recognize that, and you care about yourself, because you're still the same self and with, the, but with, with, with additional experiences in this, in this interpretation, you're, in a, in a sense, in the driver's seat. But that driver's seat, I don't see how you can legitimately avoid, given that there is a temporal structure in your life. 
But if you look at the dynasty and the fact that in this framework we have four separate individuals, playing a game against the future individual in my dynasty isn't quite as schizophrenic as... No, as, there, were, there was no time inconsistency. What is imperative to have a time consistency in that framework in the sense that A, it doesn't require any form of schizophrenia, and I'm just wondering from a normative perspective, is time consistency really, I mean, obviously Koopman's had a very, very neat framework and it all seemed very highly reasonable, but, of, I mean, there's the whole sort of behavioral literature that sort of deals with these issues of pain with yourself and whatnot, and on the other hand, if you're just looking at the dynasty and the fact that it's going to be a future self, they might have a view, you might have a different view to that, that is, I don't see the moral necessity. Okay, let me, let me try to put a footnote to what Parker said. I mean, all that stuff is about feasibility. So, but we frame the question as what does May 9th, 2012, does Gupta think about how the world should run in terms of absolute ethical preferences? And later on, of course, we're going to merge them with incentive constraints and feasibility. But, but if you frame the question that way, it seems to me that it naturally has to have a time-consistent answer. That's not to say that that time-consistent answer couldn't differ from May 10th Descoptes answer, but, but the way we think about ethics privileges the current self. And, and if that's, I think, the, the best honest case for time-consistency. Sorry, can I, I, I don't think I understood that. So you're taking Partha today yeah. and his values. And you're saying that those values have to be time consistent. Right? Yeah. Even though part just of the because they're values. Different, different values. Just because they're values. Okay, but I don't understand what it means for them to be time consistent, that they're, they're just the values he has today. It means when Partha is sort of, he, he, he has preferences, and say he makes a hypothetical choice from some feasible set, and then he imagines himself from today's point of view executing the first part of the plan. I think it would be sort of crazy and not at all like the part that I know to change his mind simply because of mentally simulating the execution of the first couple of days of the plan. And that's to say, that's another way of saying if you view the exercise as what are part of his May 9th preferences, they have to be time consistent. That's not to say... But Partha knows very well that tomorrow you have different values. Yes, but so when he imagines himself acting, when today he imagines himself acting in the future, what's he supposed to do? In, is he supposed to today's find out what is what is it that his today preferences to be timeless? Today's preferences are the answer to a hypothetical question, namely, how would I like the rest of the world to go? Um, you know, suppose the answer to that question. Uh, obviously, that answer is going to be different in the future. For instance, if, if the answer is I would like myself to buy a 90,000 pound Ferrari today, tomorrow I will wish I hadn't, well, for a non-durable Ferrari, tomorrow I will wish I hadn't done that. But, but, but it's meaningful for me to say, from my current point of view, that's how I would like the world to go. So it's something like, that's not time. Today, I would like myself to buy a Ferrari Say, on well, Friday, make it nice, make it nice and I would like myself to get the money 
out of the bank account on Thursday, so I could buy the car on Friday. It would be incoherent of me today to think, I'll buy the Ferrari on Friday, and I will spend all my money before then. So yes. I can't buy the Ferrari on Monday. Is that, is that the idea? I, so I, the plans, I, hypothetical plans I'm making for myself today that's better be consistent. That's positively correlated with the idea. John said, and then I know this is a teasiness, but uh, in distinguishing between the past and the future, let's suppose that the past is such as what you know what happened. <coughs> we understand no realization. The future, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and your, your argument about how you treat the past relative to the future seems to hinge on some sort of argument that as you let the uh, uncertainty go to zero, you move continuously to uh, a, a world of certainty. Uh, that's, right. and, and I'm not sure why that should. I don't see that at all. Yes, I, I think you could, with uncertainty continually being resolved, you could frame the whole thing as a debate about the time consistency of rules, of, of dynamic programming, optimal policy rules. And time consistency is a completely separate issue from how those rules react to the temporal resolution of uncertainty. Well, is that really true if you think about the way ambiguity, for example, works? Um, I'm, I'm just, can lead you but this is a standard term. Uh, yeah, this is just the framework. principle of optimality basically says if you think about the contingencies and plan for them optimally, then your plan shouldn't change just because you executed part of it and the uncertainty turned out. Yes, it's a plan, remember, is a contingent plan. It's always uh, conditional on what you, where each node you have. Contingent planning is like complete contract. But, um, you know. but does that characteristic still carry over if you have ambiguity? Oh, um, I'm not, not sure about I'm, that. Well, I'm slightly skeptical whether it does, because in some representations, ambiguity is a bit like and the probability is yeah. for less than one. And then there is a jump between today and tomorrow yeah. because Okay, I would certainly resolve this fragile in other directions. So I think we should break for coffee, but first let me say um, I don't mean to stop the discussion after I get the last word in. <laughs> <laughs> here to be shouted at during coffee. Um, Partha's here a little bit tomorrow morning, probably I'd say from nine, that gives you enough time. If you want to talk to him, we have a room where you could make a date over coffee or in the rest of this afternoon and meet him tomorrow for a private discussion or something. So Let's meet at 9.30. Okay, so 9.30 I would say roughly to 11 or the... Is, that's, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Um, but if I, so coffee for a half an hour or tea for, sorry we're in England now, tea for a half an hour in the hall and then back here at 3.30 for Professor Broom's presentation. So.